is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu today, the Rams wrapping up the Super Bowl victory parade through downtown L.A. to the Coliseum. Players and fans celebrating after a win over the Cincinnati Bengals on Sunday. And so we will continue with our coverage of the parade. After that, the latest poll numbers are not looking so good for Democrats as the midterm elections approach. They're even losing popularity here in California. The state's program to fight climate change while not harming major gas uh, house gas polluters could end up hurting more than helping. And there's a growing mystery over what really happened to Bob Saget on the night he died. Doctors say they may have cured HIV in a woman for the first time thanks to stem cells. Buying a home getting even harder as investors are purchasing more and more of them. We'll look into where they're purchasing and how it could impact black communities. And the January 6th committee getting more info about White House guests on the day that that happened. And President Biden rejecting a request by the former president to shield the White House visitor logs. So we begin with the Rams celebration with us. KNX reporters John Baird, Margaret Carrero at the Coliseum. KNX traffic reporter Scott Bird, who's overhead right about now. We can hear him kind of buzzing over the <laughs> over the city. That, that's him right now. Yeah, I think that's him right there. Uh, John, let's uh, very uh, quickly start with you uh, on the ground, and then we'll go to, I guess, Margaret. Uh, from your vantage point, uh, I know they were expecting thousands and thousands. How many do you think were there? Well, there had to have been several thousand out on the grass area, but that really built up after probably 10 o'clock in the morning, and I had come inside the fence, so I was close to the stage. I couldn't tell exactly, but I can tell you this, that when those buses were heading toward toward me, toward the Coliseum, there were a lot of people there, and they were going crazy. So there was a pretty good-sized crowd. I can't give you a number, but there were quite a few people here on the grass outside the Coliseum. Margaret, uh, you talked to a bunch of people from, from early, early on who were, who were out there and saying, you know what, we just we needed something like this, especially over the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's almost an understatement. I think that was just the, the feeling among everybody, because collectively, we've all been through a lot the last few years. So this was like really the first moment I think a lot of people felt like they can come out and they can be around one another and they can come out on a joyous occasion and and celebrate and it's very much a family affair out here i've seen lots of families spoken to a few of them with itty bitty little ones like i I spoke with a a gentleman right uh over by the shrine he had his eight-month-old daughter in his hands and they were both wearing matching uh uh 99 jerseys right (laughs) it's just it's it's very much the cutest thing uh to see the families out here and just the energy of joy and excitement and jubilation to have the Rams not only win the Super Bowl, but to win it in Los Angeles. That, I think, was a very big deal for a lot of folks here. Scott, you had uh, literally a bird's eye view uh, from where you are, so tell us about it. Yeah, and uh, to kind of give you a crowd estimate, I'd say probably anywhere between two and 5,000, so maybe split the difference. It's obviously kind of hard to count exactly, but... Uh, definitely a couple thousand uh, at the bare minimum there. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, something you don't see every day. A lot of air traffic up here, uh, banner tows and helicopters and whatnot. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a DC-3 that came and flew over the uh, rally, too, at one point. So uh, that's certainly something you don't see every day. But uh, right now, still a crowd down there, but I do see a lot of it scattering. I saw a lot of pop- people uh, walking down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And there's still uh, considerable uh, surface street congestion and closures in the area. 
John, you get sprayed with any of the champagne? Oh, oh, I didn't get sprayed with the champagne, but I'll tell you what, when the confetti came over the fence when they were coming in and at the end, it was in everything. It was in the VIP food here. <laughs> it was in the drinks. People had it in their hair, but it was a lot of fun, and I've never been right in the middle of such a sea of, of confetti. I think people really enjoyed that and the fireworks going off. I think everyone had a good time, and certainly the players and the coaches had a good time. We know that because when they arrived here, it was clear they had been partying for quite a while already. <laughs> I bet. Margaret, what was the most memorable moment for you? Oh, my gosh. I just think being in the energy of the people here, you know, so stinking excited, you know? I mean, it's just you, you feel the good vibes out here. That's all I can say, is, and that's what everybody has expressed to me, just good vibes all around. And I got to tell you, I loved the confetti. That was pretty cool. That was really, really cool. Margaret Carrero, John Baird, Scott Burtz, thanks to all of you. Right now, the latest polls show Democrats are losing popularity ahead of the November midterm elections. President Biden has been dealing with sagging approval ratings. The newest poll from UC Berkeley shows Vice President Harris has a 38 percent approval rating amongst voters. And that's just in California. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's not up for reelection this year, has just a 30 percent approval rating. With us is Sonoma State political science professor David McEwen. David, thanks for being with us. Um, wow, that's a pretty low rating. Uh, let's take uh, the vice president first. I mean, she's a Californian, and this is her home state uh, politically. Uh, you know, 38 approval rating? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty low. In some ways, not surprising. I mean, look. If you look at what happens to presidents in their first midterm election and their party, so Democrats, right, uh, have the presidency, they have the House barely, they have uh, the Senate in a virtual tie. The president's popularity and whether voters think the country's headed in the right or wrong direction affects everything up and down the ballot. So that's going to weigh on a vice president who uh, is looking for a portfolio, doesn't have a clear role, is uncertain what that role looks like going forward. And you also have a Biden popularity himself that hovers in the low 40s. All of that portends a wave election for Republicans that is building. And you see that even with the data from this IGS poll from UC Berkeley for amongst Democrats and Democratic identifiers, even here in California, surprising in the strength or depth, I would say, of the lack of popularity of several well-known California-based politicians. Yeah, so um, obviously we can tie inflation and pandemic and everything to the president. For Kamala Harris, she gets a lot of the, the, the shadow effects from being part of this administration. But you mentioned, you know, not a clearly defined role. Have they had trouble making it seem like she's really in charge of something or out there more? I mean, or does she just not really take on with a lot of people in this job? Yeah, I think it's it's hard, A, for the portfolio of the vice presidency, part of the conversation moving past 2022 to 23, 24 will be her role, the age of the president, all of that kind of noise. And look, if, if the average midterm loss for a president when they're not popular is about 37 seats, that's average. That's what the history shows us. And if Joe Biden and Democrats have a five seat lead in the House, that means Nancy Pelosi, another Democratic politician based from California, is going to face uh, a, a real sense of trouble. Now, that does that spill over to someone like Gavin Newsom? Perhaps. But it also affects the degree to which the Biden administration improves the role and portfolio of someone who is really a, a change maker like Kamala Harris. 
So it is a drag on all of them. And for your listeners, there are a couple things to pay attention to. One is whether voters think the country's headed in the right or wrong direction, that state of the economy, the growth, but also the president's approval about six months out from the election. So as we get closer and closer to that six-month mark, if Joe Biden is in the low 40s like he is now, that's going to be a huge barometer on the likelihood of Democrats holding on the House and any of these politicians moving forward and Democrats being able to cement some gains that they got from the presidential election of 2020. Well, of course, the first of March is when the president delivers the State of the Union address. Is there an opportunity there to, and I hate this term, but to reset his presidency? And if he does, what does he need to do? Yeah, I mean, there is an opportunity. The problem is they're running out of those opportunities, right? They passed Build Back Better, or I mean, elements of Build Back Better pre. And what I mean by that is the infrastructure bill. But by the time they passed that, it was so late in the game that the economic effects that could affect this, whether the country's headed in the right direction or wrong direction, that time has already passed. People have cemented a view, and even if things don't go down in Ukraine, it looks like things will be settled there, foreign policy is still going to be a big deal. So all of these things build an image of whether your party has the country in the right direction or wrong direction. That doesn't seem to be happening. And that March 1st reset for a State of the Union is a tall order for a guy who often has – say, gaffes when he's in front of public, uh, who often, uh, you know, says the wrong thing. All of that gives everyone pause, especially in a state as deeply blue as California. And if it's happening here, it doesn't mean that someone like Donald Trump runs for the presidency again in 2024, but it means that he talks about it and he, he moves forward the, the Republican Party and he's back on the national scale if Democrats lose the House, the Senate, and, and face this kind of kickback if you will, all of that we would revisit after the midterm election in November is something to pay attention to. And Democrats, I think, aren't doing enough to to really move forward with it with a clear agenda. Sonoma State's political science professor, David McEwen. Coming up, a woman with HIV might have been cured because of stem cells. And President Biden says no to a request from former President Trump to shield White House visitor logs from January 6th investigators. We get into what that means when we continue. Right now, new study suggests California's cap-and-trade program may backfire in the efforts to fight climate change. Independence Emissions Markets Advisory Committee found refineries and other big gas-emitting companies, greenhouse gas-emitting companies, they built up so many of these credits, allowing them to pollute, it could hurt the long-term goals to actually cut the emissions. So with us are two members of the committee, Chairman Dallas Bertrand and Vice Chair Danny Cullenwort. Uh, thanks for being with us. Um, Dallas, let's start with you. So f- uh, refresh your course for people the way this was supposed to work. There's allowances and you can buy or trade and you get some of them if you're one of these big polluters. And there's supposed to be less over time that the state has. And then so it kind of shifts everybody in some direction. So how did we get to the point where some of these big guys have so many of these that it might not matter in the end because they can just keep polluting? Well, it's important to know that the uh, cap and trade program, despite its visibility, has uh, actually not responsible for most of the emission reductions that the state has achieved so far. It's important, but it's really regulations and standards that have achieved most of the emission reductions. So in this context, the cap and trade program is like a leave no low cost emission reduction behind 
net that makes sure that at least there's a price incentive to, to achieve emission reductions that are there at low cost for these covered emission sources. The issue now is that there has been an abundance of tradable emissions credits such that the market is going to be likely to play a diminishing role going into the future in achieving em emission reductions, and that could hurt the state in achieving its emissions goals. So, Danny, why don't we pick up from there? How does it hurt the state, or how could it hurt the state? Well, so the state's current plan for how it's going to get to its 2030 climate target, which is a much deeper target and in line with what we and other places around the world need to do to address the climate problem, relies heavily on this program to make sure that emissions fall over time. And if there are too many of these allowances or credits built up in the system, then companies can comply with the program rules without making the reductions that are required to get there. So in retrospect, I mean, did we make the bank too big and that's why there's too many credits they're spilling over or how, how, how did we get to this? And was there a warning from somebody, at least at the beginning, going, I don't know if this is going to work, guys? Yeah, the, the, there was a lot of evidence, I think, that, that this was a concern. It was a subject of much debate four or five years ago. So there were a number of people who said, you know, we, we don't have the balance right. We need to reduce the supply of allowances over time. The regulator, others disagreed. I think we're in this important moment, and Dallas, I'm sure, will want to weigh in on this, where we have a chance to take stock of what's going on and ask, is the program delivering? And if it's not delivering, what do we need to do to fix it? Okay, so, so Dallas, you know, this, I was going to ask you, Dallas, uh, what are the solutions? And, and uh, Danny was just mentioned what we need to do to fix it. What do we need to do to fix it? Well, the, the timing of this is fortuitous, because right now the state is involved in its annual, or its five-year scoping plan process. And so they'll be like building a blueprint for how the state is going to achieve its emission reductions goals over the rest of the decade and beyond. So this is a perfect time to, to evaluate this situation. And um, it, it's a problem to have so many emission allowances, but it sort of beats the alternative, which is if the state did not have any kind of buffer, then the danger might be the cost could be running very high and uh, the state would have less latitude. So right now the state has an opportunity to adjust the program and make it stronger going forward. And, the, and our report suggests a couple of ways they could do that. They could reduce the issuance of new allowances going forward, and that would um, make them scarcer in the market. And we suggest some you know, mechanisms that could achieve that in a cost-effective way. Chairman uh, Dallas Bertrand there, Vice Chair Danny Cullenwards of the uh, Independent Emissions Market Advisory Committee. Thanks to you both. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Bob Saget's death. Uh, still some mystery here. Police in Orlando, they say no foul play. TMZ reporting medical experts. They are wondering, though, how he suffered such a severe skull fracture. They say the injury is consistent with being hit by a bat or falling from something like 30 feet. Judge today temporarily blocked the release of certain medical records regarding Saget's death. And this comes after his family sued to keep them private. With us is Harvey Levin, executive producer of TMZ. Harvey, my friend, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, guys. I, good afternoon, guys. <laughs> Oops. So, so bad, I, bad way of starting. But that's, that's, a, that's okay. We'll fix it. In we have a replay. You can say good yeah. evening. It'll work later. Yeah, yeah. We'll, fix, we'll fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> uh, when, when, when Bob Saget died, I remember we had some experts on the show, and the speculation was perhaps he uh, was in bed and, and he you know hit his head too hard on the headboard and it knocked him out and then he had a, a, some bleeding in the in the brain and that killed him. But the evidence that's coming out now seems to to point in a very odd direction, doesn't it? 
I don't know that I would say that. And let, let, let me tell you what we know. So, well, look, when we broke this story that he died, what we were told by people who were, you know, in, involved in this was that they thought it was a heart attack because he was laying there peacefully and in bed under the covers, and they thought it was a heart attack. So here's what we know. All the people who were in the room at the time had no idea he had any kind of a bruise on the back of his head. It was only discovered in the autopsy. Um, so that said, then the question is, what is this thing? So here's what I can tell you. When Bob Saget arrived at the hotel, um, all of the people we're talking to connected with this say he was okay. And the reason they say that is, you know, remember, he did a show uh, two hours away, and they say with that kind of an injury, he never could have driven two hours. So he gets to the hotel, and nobody observed anything that was untoward, unusual. He walks in his room, shuts the door, and the next thing anybody knows, he's dead in his room later that afternoon. So the way that hotel works, there, you know, there is a, an electronic lock. Um, they can tell if anybody opened that door between the time he walked in and the time the, the people came in to discover him later in the day. That door was never opened. There are two ways they know that. One is the lock, and the second is they can actually tell when the door physically opens. It didn't open. So nobody got in that room with Bob Saget by the, from the moment he walked in at 2 in the morning. So then the question is, what could have happened? What we were told the day that we did this story was that, you know, they, they, they thought it was a heart attack, but I had also heard something about a headboard. And when the autopsy report came out, um, I talked to somebody connected with this who also mentioned a headboard. Well, we circled back again today. The authorities believe that the, the headboard is tufted. There's a material on it, but there's one area of the headboard that isn't, and it's wood. So their best guess is that he got in bed, and I don't know, if, you know, think about driving two hours, getting there at two in the morning. Sometimes you just kind of lean back hard. They think that's what happened because it's the only theory they've got, which is that he leaned back, hit his head when he was getting into bed, and maybe didn't get knocked out, but got under the covers and may have actually become unconscious shortly thereafter, which is how they found him under the covers. Yeah, and the, the hit, no, though, no, I mean... No foul play. The, so no foul play. No one was in the room. But, I mean, that's, again, they're still a little bit puzzled just because that's a really hard hit to the head. So they were going maybe fall in the bathroom or maybe you hit your head on the headboard or something. But, you know it's the, the the initial kind of thing was oh he he went to bed thinking nothing of it so is that still kind of in play that he could have thought nothing of it even if he hit his head this hard it, it's possible and you look what what they're telling us is we just are never going to know precisely what happened in the room um whether he peacefully went to sleep and never woke up which was a theory whether he hurt himself so severely that he tried to get in bed and then lapsed into unconsciousness. We're probably never going to know that. That's what they're saying. But what they are saying is that when you start piecing all of this together and seeing him coming to the hotel, checking in, going to the room, everything seemed okay, and then something happened in the room, but nobody else was there other than Bob Saget, 
Something happened. That's their best theory. But they will also acknowledge they don't know for sure. Do we have any idea why the family is so uh, vigorously pursuing uh, keeping some of the investigative material out of the public eye? I, I get the pictures. They don't want pictures out there. But why do they want to block other things? Well, I mean, they're, look, I think the pictures are their big thing, and the pictures they're worried about are pictures in the actual hotel room, not the autopsy pictures, but the pictures in the hotel room. And that's their big thing right now. Uh, you know, I talked to somebody connected with the family today, and they were very clear about that. It was about the pictures. I understand what you're asking. Uh, why go beyond that to all of the documentation? I don't know, but they they are very comfortable that what I've just explained to you guys is what they know and what they believe to be true. So it's not like they're trying to hide anything. They believe what I just told you, um, that this was an accident, that nobody else was in the room, that he hit his head on something. They don't know for sure what it is. There's a theory, but they don't want the pictures out because it would live forever on the Internet. Harvey Levin, executive producer, TMZ. Doctors have long been searching for a cure for HIV. They now might be a big step closer. A team of researchers says it's possibly cured a woman of HIV for the first time. She joins three men whom scientists have or may have cured of HIV. Group used a new stem cell transplant method. Dr. Yvonne Bryson from the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and UCLA uh, Mattel Children's Hospital with us now led the observational study. Doctor, thank you for being here. Take us through in some more detail uh, what happened in this case. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I think this is a, a unique case. It's the third. It's actually the third, I think, not the uh, not the fourth. Uh, uh, and the first woman who is uh, in remission from HIV. Now, in this case, uh, this woman is um, of mixed race and she uh, unfortunately uh, was living with HIV and got uh, leukemia which required a, a transplant, a stem cell transplant. And in, in uh, curing this, uh, this leukemia, uh, it, we, as part of a protocol run by the National Institutes of Health, uh, and I was the chair of it, um, was using cord blood, uh, cord blood that has this resistant mutation that makes uh, uh, the cells HIV resistant. So uh, uh, this woman received over four years ago, uh, this transplant combined with um, some cells uh, that are um, a half match from a relative uh, to enhance the recovery. And she has uh, been free of HIV since the beginning of this transplant. And she stopped um, antiviral medication uh, 14 months ago. And she remains without any evidence of HIV. How, how difficult, our, okay, how difficult, though, is the, is the treatment, and is it the kind of treatment that you would suspect uh, could be used successfully in the years to come for many, many people? Um, I think it's very important for people to know that this is a risky procedure, and it should only be used in cases where you need this uh, stem cell transplant for other reasons, like cancer. Um, so it is not something to be taken on. Um, sorry, could you say that again? Sorry. sorry. 
No worries. <laughs> it's Siri talking to me. Yes, that's right. Like, mine does that too. I'll, yes. I'll read the intro to a story and Im- she'll start talking. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> it, it's happened live on the air before. I know. Um, okay. To, to go back to where we were, though, you were saying, you know, this is almost like kind of a byproduct of what was happening anyways because it's it's a super risky treatment so you're giving it to somebody to help with the cancer and it needs to be done in this kind of a a setting to begin with because you know the procedure itself has a whole bunch of risks so maybe you already almost need some sort of fatal disease uh, going on yes i would agree with that and the the thing here is um that uh using the cord is an advantage because the previous two patients, the Berlin and the London patient, which were reported some years ago, um, they received adult donor cells. And the cord, using cord blood is an advantage in this way that it can be screened. There are lots of cord blood banks. It's, there's not routine screening done at this point, but um, this allows you to screen a lot of samples uh, to find a a potential match. And because this woman was of mixed race, uh, it's even more difficult to find a genetic match and find this unusual rare mutation at the same time. You know, I'm, I'm, able to, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there are people who who might be wondering, because we're still, of course, in, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, that we, you know, we had vaccines, many of them developed in such record time for the coronavirus, uh, and yet all these decades later, we still don't have any any vaccine that would be effective at preventing HIV so that one doesn't get into a situation where they have to contemplate potentially draconian treatments. Um, I agree. I wish we had an HIV vaccine. We don't. It isn't that uh, a myriad of scientists and people all over the world are looking for this vaccine. However, we're closer I think to that, um, and uh, but I think we learned we learned from each of these cases, um, and there's there's a tremendous number of people looking for HIV cure from in many different ways. But the thing about this case was that we by reducing the virus to undetectable amounts um, in this patient, and also creating an immune. Um, system that's resistant to HIV, in this case, by replacing her cells, but in other cases, potentially in the future, by using an HIV HIV vaccine to boost immunity or other immune ways to do it, um, I think that that gives us a strategy for something more relevant to the population. We have also, um, I've been involved, uh, I'm actually a pediatrician, um, and I've been involved in studies uh, trying to find an HIV cure, as in the Mississippi baby for perinatally infected infants. And um, there's a strong effort in this direction as well, uh, looking at treating very early, um, as well as adults and babies, immediately to try and nip it in the bud, HIV, if you do uh, happen to get it, and uh, create this sort of HIV um, uh, remission. Dr. Yvonne Bryson, Geffen School of Medicine, UCLA, UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. And her assistant, Siri, don't forget. That's right. Yes, (laughs) always by your side. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Lots of reasons why buying a home is difficult right now. A study from Redfin helps to explain some of this. Finds investors bought nearly one in seven homes sold in America's top metro areas. That's the most in at least two decades. Washington Post analysis of the study found neighborhoods where a majority of people are black have been heavily targeted. It found 30 percent of home sales in majority black neighborhoods were to investors compared with 12% in other zip codes. Tony Carter is president of the Los Angeles Southwest Association of Realtors. Tony, thanks for being with us. So this would seem by any measure somewhat troubling because uh, if investors are buying up the homes, especially in uh, minority-owned areas, uh, minority areas, it, it drives up the cost, right, of, of homes and ultimately rents if you can't afford the home, and it's not good news for anyone, perhaps, except the investors. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, there's already a shortage of homes in Los Angeles, and when bulk investors come and buy up large numbers of properties, it just makes the situation worse because it's taking more homes off the market. It eventually drives up the prices and just puts home ownership out of reach for a lot of our first-time buyers. So who are these when we say investors? Is it like large corporations or is it just even companies around here or just, I don't know, rich people? And then what do they want to do? Are they renting them out? Are they flipping all of these? Are they just trying to, you know, rise the price and, and then get get more on the, on the back end? You know, it's a combination of, of, of all the things you named. Um, we do see a lot of out-of-state investors that are purchasing, but you also have the smaller um you know, it's not the mom and pops that used to buy homes. You know, the home comes for sale next door to them. It, it is, you know, those that are doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 properties a year. And what happens is when they come in to make offers, a lot of times they'll go directly to the home, the homeowner if the property may be distressed. And they, they're making offers directly to them, in a sense, sometimes cutting out the realtors. So the sellers may not be, may be leaving a lot of money on the table because, they're not necessarily being represented properly. But when you have those investors purchasing the homes, you not only have those that are flipping the property. And so what happens is if a property does hit the market in a standard transaction and an investor is making a full price offer as a, a standard first time home buyer and this, the investor wins, they tend to split the property. And a few months later, that same home will come back on for a couple hundred thousand dollars. You do also see um, certain areas where the investor will purchase a home and it will be used for a rental property. And as long as the city that the property is, is in doesn't have a form of rent control or if the property is vacant, that new uh, owner, the investor, can then increase the rent, making it unaffordable for just renters to live in neighborhoods they grew up in. So is there a solution to this? That's a good question. So there has been talk before of having some type of um, friendly competition where um, the investors are kind of limited to what they can or how much, you know, in terms of what the, what they can. But right now with inventory being low, it is really, it's still up to the seller who they, whose offer they accept and what offer. And typically sellers are going to give, take the offer that is the strongest, that is going to be, you know, the, have the most benefits for themselves. Um, that's where the realtor does come into play to help navigate through those offers that are there. Um, what we advocate for our buyers as realtors is that they are ready and strong and competitive when the house hits the market. So we're constantly making sure they've been pre-approved, their credit is strong, they have the assets to support their down payment and their closing costs. Um, 
nowadays here, especially in Los Angeles, it takes two incomes to purchase a property. So whether it's your spouse, whether it's a relative or a friend that you might want to pull your resources together to ultimately secure um, the home and, and have that American dream of ownership. Well, I, when it comes to just competing, it's it's so tough for people still. I mean, the first problem is there's so many cash offers anyways, just from people mm-hmm. with a lot of money. And then if you're fighting the investors, they're always going to do all cash. And that's that's probably what's going to win. True. That is. It is a lot of times. But there's a lot of times sellers do still have um, a desire to have a, a family in the home or something because of sentimental value for themselves. This may be the home that they raise their family in or there could be, um, you know, other reasons they just decide that, you know, if they know somebody or if they don't, it, a lot of times, depending on how the seller wants to look at the offers, it may not always be about money. Tony Carter, president of the L.A. Southwest Association of Realtors. The January 6th committee could get a big gift of information into what happened on that day at the White House. Thanks to President Biden, the president rejecting a request by former President Trump to shield White House visitor logs from the committee. And the White House counsel wrote, uh, Mr. Biden has determined that asserting executive privilege is not to the best interests of the U.S. With us is Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks for coming back. So I guess uh, baseline here is this is yet another loss for the former president in terms of things he was trying to hold back that he's now going to have to turn over. Absolutely. This has been a very bad week. For President Trump, first, his accountants threw him under the bus and said that uh, for the last five to 10 years, uh, they could not uh, vouch for his uh, tax returns and all the tax information for the uh, Trump organization. But here's why this is uh, important, this um, revelation. The select committee is uh, being run by two, at least two wonderful, brilliant prosecutors that I used to work with. And they are going to get these logs. And why are they important? Simple. Those logs are going to lead. And you're going to find out the dates and time of visits, who came to visit, with whom were they visiting, and the exact room. That will lead to subpoenas for witness testimony. And it also shows on January 6th and before exactly the individuals meeting with Trump, if you are trying to establish that there was sort of a conspiracy or aiding and abetting on the part of the president of the United States. So this is incredible. And from a historical precedent point, it's unremarkable because uh, the Biden administration releases these logs, with some exceptions, on a monthly basis. The Obama administration released the logs on a monthly basis. So there's actually no legal basis for the former president to claim uh, executive privilege. So will he file lawsuits trying to delay it? Sure, because that's all he does is he files lawsuits. And every lawsuit he files gets beaten. So it's a bad week for uh, the president, uh, the former president. Although every lawsuit he files kind of runs the clock, right? I mean, it, it, it keeps delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying, uh, delaying and, and that might be his ultimate goal. Um, but let me ask you something, because you're talking about how important the logs are to establish who is uh, visiting at the White House. But perhaps isn't it even more important to know who he talked to on the phone? And therein lies a big problem, because the former president is well known to have made a lot of calls on his private cell phone, uh, in which case there would be no logs. 
Well, the, the, yeah, the decision, the, the revelation is just the laws. It's not the cell phone. And I got to say this: Trump is very smart. He doesn't leave his fingerprints anywhere. He doesn't do emails. He doesn't do texts that I'm aware of. And I think he even borrows other people's phones. And I, I'm sure that he was using just the general line to call out to people. He's not stupid. He doesn't want to leave any trace that can be, uh, be uh, you know, reprinted or followed. So the logs are helpful. They're not dispositive, but they are extremely uh, informative as to who, with whom he was meeting on January 6th and the days leading up to that. And that can lead to invaluable investigatory leads more subpoenas. Right. So the part you said about even going where in the complex, which rooms these people were cleared access to. So that gives you the the kind of direction to go in after, because a lot of what the committees had, you know, so far where they've been getting cooperation has been like from lower level staffers. So they would need something more that they can, you know, point towards if they're going to go down these avenues. Absolutely. And, you know, if Gene Rossi were to go in, sign the log, and meet in, uh, you know, room 22 of the old executive office building, and I'm meeting with some low-level staffer, who cares? But when you have maybe, uh, uh, you know, Giuliani or some of the other individuals who spoke at that rally, and... and oh, Gene, are you there? That's a, that's oh, there he is. Yeah, can you, can yeah you, can we, you we, we almost, we almost lost uh, you there. Go ahead. I, I apologize. I'm on the Acela back to D.C. I apologize. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, I know I know you guys don't like the Big Apple in D.C., but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, no, it, it's in, with whom the president is meeting. Just go back to Watergate. A lot of the information that they got at the end was due to the individuals that he was consulting with at certain points in time. And it's not just but, whom you're meeting with, is when. Right, but Gene, you know, uh, as a former prosecutor, that these kinds of investigations, especially involving a former president, where you want to make sure you have your, your I's dotted and your T's crossed, right, uh, take a long time. And that goes back to my question a few minutes ago about, you know, the president's propensity, former president's propensity for filing lawsuits and running the clock. He's well aware that the polling is showing that the Democrats could take a, a beating when it comes to the November midterm elections. And if, in fact, the Republicans retake the House, this committee, this January 6th committee is going to disappear. And with it, probably all of this evidence. I'm going to I'm going to say something shocking. I think the Democratic members of the House kind of know that they're going to lose the House. I I'm telling people, uh, I predict at least 30 lost Democratic seats are going to be lost in the House. And, and here's the shocker. I think the committee is doing something that's beneficial to the United States of America. Let politics be damned. They are going to do a report, put it out there, because history is going to judge how well this committee does, not the election this November. And I think the members of the committee, the staff, they really want to do what's right and get to the bottom of what actually happened on January 6th, the days after it, the days before it. And that's important for history. And I think they're putting politics aside. I really do. I really do. Gene Rossi, attorney, former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of Virginia. I hope he wasn't on that one the other day that got stuck for seven hours. Remember oh, no, but, but no, he's, he's on the fast one. Yes. 
Well, it was the one that got stuck. Well, it's not always fast. This is moving today. <laughs> yes. All right. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.